Our Father, it was said throughout the book of Judges that at that particular chapter in the life of the nation of Israel, that every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, we're not too far off of that description. And we think ahead to what is coming, and you have given us a scenario in Scripture. You gave it to Daniel and others in the, in the, in the Word of God. And you said, this is what's going to happen in the last days. And there is going to be an Antichrist, and he will come with smooth words, and he will deceive, and he will distort, and he will be worshipped. There's not just one Antichrist. There's the one at the end, but John said many Antichrists have gone out into the world. There have always been Antichrists. But that Antichrist is described as the man of lawlessness. And we are living in a time where the, the law is ignored, where it is just swept aside by those who are privileged. It doesn't apply to the elite. It only applies to the common man. We, we see all these symptoms, Lord, we're reading about them every day, and it can get somewhat overwhelming, and it can, get, it can get discouraging, and we can begin to uh, worry concerning our children and our grandkids. We thank you for truth. We're, we're not here tonight to have a discussion about ideas. We're not here to uh, posit different theories tonight. We're here to study your word and what you say. And your word can be trusted. Your word cuts through the nonsense and the foolishness that we are surrounded by on every side. The lunatics are running the asylum. Yet you are in charge, and you are in control, and you are working your plan. We are so grateful to know you. We are grateful that he whose mind is stayed on thee, thou will keep in perfect peace. We are, as the old hymn says tonight, we are stayed upon Jehovah. S-T-A-Y-E-D. We are stayed. We are fixed on you. Not on this deal or this government or this administration or this policy or any of that stuff. Not any party. Not any particular idea. We're stayed on you. Stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. Finding as he promised perfect peace. And rest. We are thankful that you are our Father and that you are the sovereign God and you are the great God. We, are thank, you, we thank you, Lord, that we have Bibles that we can read. And we thank you that in the morning when we get up and before we go out to work and face 
the stuff that's before us and before we turn on the radio or listen to the different news stuff, that we can have a briefing with you and you tell us what is true and you tell us what is real in life and you tell us that this life is not all there is but that you are the Alpha and the Omega, and that one day you are sending your son, and he's going to make everything right when he comes back the second time. When he came the first time, he made it possible for our sins to be forgiven and for us to be put in right relationship with you. And because for so many of us in this room that has happened, you have now opened our eyes and you have set us free, and instead of being spiritually dead, you've made us spiritually alive, and you have changed our hearts, and now we have the potential, Lord, to walk with you and, and to be used by you and to make a difference in the lives of those around us who do not know you. That's why we're here tonight. We are asking you to equip us. We are asking you to fine-tune us. We are asking you, Lord, to give us what we need, and every guy has different needs here. There are guys in here that are crushed tonight. They, they are just broken because of what has transpired in recent days and weeks in their lives. Uh, never, never have they been so devastated in all of their lives as they are right now. And for those guys, you, you, you express your great mercy and compassion. You, you know their pain and you know their brokenness and you have not left them to themselves. Others of us, Lord, are... Uh, Others of us, Lord, are just, we're just tired. We're just fatigued from just the daily grind. And we need to be encouraged and we need to be energized. No matter where we are coming from tonight, we trust you as our great Father to speak to our hearts, to energize us, to give us, to, to give us a shot of truth that will give us hope and keep us going. Help us to apply our faith. Help us not to store it up somewhere, but to put it to work. And then I would pray, Lord, that you would give us great peace in the midst of all this foolishness and all this turmoil. May there be a great sense of peace that all is well because you are God and you are in charge and we belong to you. We will be with you forever, and in the interim, until we get to heaven, you will take care of us and supply everything we need. That is a promise in your word. We're grateful men tonight, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been doing a study on the giants, and their basic premise, if you've been with us, we started this thing in September, but if you've been with us, you know the drill. The uh, idea of this study is, and it's been based on uh, Joshua and Caleb, and just real quick for you guys who are here for the first time, we, we've kind of based this whole thing out of Joshua and Caleb's life. There was an event that took place in Numbers 13, where they were going into the promised land. God said to Moses, pick 12 guys, because you got 12 tribes. One from each tribe. Make sure you pick a leader from each tribe. 
go in and do a recon mission. They go check out the promised land. They come back. They give a report after 40 days. It's a great land. It's an incredible land. But there are giants in the land. And 10 of the 12 guys basically give such a report to the 2 million men, women, and children of Israel that they panic them. They absolutely frighten them to death. They, they scare them out of their wits. There are giants in the land, and there was a little race of giants. But because of the fear that was in the, 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 their hearts, these 10 leaders, because of the fear that was in their hearts, they panicked the people, they stampeded the people, uh, the people got irrational. They said, gosh, we never should have left Egypt. You know, we ought to elect a new leader and go back and be slaves again. That's insane. That's stupid. That makes no sense. But when people get panicked, people don't think. And so you had 10 leaders that were panicked. And instead of trusting God to fight the giants, they panicked the people. It was sort of like saying, hey, we've got such huge problems that if we don't come up with $750 billion in the next three days, we're in trouble and we're collapsing. Same kind of thing. I don't know why I suddenly feel better, but I do. <laughs> you know, Hegel said that history teaches us that men never learn from history. And that's why history keeps getting repeated. That's why a historian is a prophet in reverse. Did you get that? That's kind of deep. If you want to know what's going to happen in the future, you look back at history. These things were written for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10 says of what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. Joshua and Caleb stood up and said, wait a minute, yo-yos. It's in the Hebrew. <laughs> God just brought us out of Egypt. His great power sent ten plagues. He took us through the Red Sea. He just defeated Pharaoh and his, and his, and his army. If God did all that for us and God defeated this massive army, why would God not fight for us and defeat the giants? Are there giants? Yes. But our God is the giant who trumps every other giant. So let's go and take the land. But they wouldn't listen. I, uh, you know, I go out on the weekends and do conferences. And... Uh, because I go out on the weekends and do conferences, and then I do this thing on Wednesday nights, I don't go travel during the week. But about once a year, I'll make an exception, and this was the week I made an exception. And Mac Brunson, who used to be down at First Baptist of Dallas, had contacted me and uh, probably six months ago. And he's at First Baptist of Jacksonville, Florida now, and for years and years, they've done a, 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 a large pastor's conference. Probably average two or 3,000 pastors at this every year. And uh, the request was, this is kind of out of left field, Steve, but would you come and do a session on how to be a man in ministry? How to be a man? And, and yeah, and, and the reason for that was is that there are so many I think this, and I think this was very astute. Basically, Mac was seeing so many young guys come out of seminary and pastor in churches who, quite frankly, don't have any idea what it means to be a man because they haven't seen it. And they have a distorted view of Christian manliness. Now, is that not tragic? 
that, that is so very sad, but it shows you how far we have fallen as a nation. It shows you how far we have, um, we have come in, in our uh, departure from, from biblical principles. Um, so I did that on Monday. And, and I was frustrated the whole time I was speaking because I wish that I had about, I wish I had about six hours and I had an hour. And as I was doing that session, I kept thinking about Joshua and Caleb. Why is it that we've been studying Joshua and Caleb for so many weeks? Uh, one reason is, is because they epitomize what it is to be a man of God. They, they have all the characteristics they have all the traits. They, uh, they, were, they, they were men who trusted God. They were men who, who lived a day at a time and put one foot in front of the other, and they kept going all the while trusting God to fulfill his promises and to do so at the exact time they would need it. That's what these guys did. They made mistakes. They, they didn't get it all right all the time. But they were guys that had a perspective of God that enabled them to not operate out of fear and to not be cowardly and to not think that the primary goal in their lives was just to be nice. There's more to being a Christian man than being nice. Is there not? Yes, there is. Nothing wrong with being nice, but sometimes nice doesn't cut it. When you're facing a giant. Sometimes you have to show courage and you have to... Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so, in, in, I, I wanted to do all this stuff on Joshua and Caleb and I'm, I'm just kind of frustrated. And here's what I landed on. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you've got four little bullets that I think captures what it is that we have seen in the life of Joshua and Caleb. Years ago, J. Edgar Hoover, as you know, head of the FBI for years and years and years, was... Um, was going over some correspondence and he had a new secretary and, and, and as he was reading the letters that, that she had typed up for him, something wasn't right. Something was out of sync. He's just reading the letters before he signs them, and something's bothering him. And then he realized this new secretary, what she had done uh, in typing up the letters, she had changed the size of the margins. She had made them, um, she had made the... the the, the, the margins uh, wider, and so as a result, the actual text was more confined, and he's reading it, and he just didn't like it. He just didn't, just bugged him. He felt constricted. Uh, he, he, he didn't like the spacing on the border, so he just scratched a note to her, and all he put in the, in the margin was, watch the borders. And for the next two weeks... FBI agents on the Canadian and Mexican border <laughs> were at a stage of heightened alert because 
Mr. Hoover had given a directive that they should watch the borders. Watch the borders. What we have in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, are four borders for biblical masculinity, in my opinion, for biblical manhood. Uh, why would we need to go over those? Well, you know what it is? It's a good way, as we've been going through and, and looking at Joshua and Caleb and their willingness to fight the giants, and we have, we have learned that, hey, you're a Christian man, guess what? You're going to be fighting the giants until the day you die. There will always be giants in your life that you are going to have to fight. Uh, giants come into our lives and they intimidate us. They, they make us aware of our own inadequacies. They, they scare us. They frighten us. Harvey Mansfield is a professor at Harvard, and he's written a book that actually has sense in it. Common sense. And he's a professor at Harvard. Well, wonders never cease. And uh, this is a pretty good book. And he's written this book on, on being a man. This guy's not a believer. But he's kind of looking at the whole culture and how screwed up we are. And he has a chapter called Manly Nihilism, N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M. It's going to get a little philosophical here. But he's talking about that when you lose your borders, when you lose your morality, everything collapses and there's no control over anything, including masculinity and manliness. And he's been talking about Ernest Hemingway, if you remember him. By the way, Hemingway was raised in a Christian home in Wheaton, Illinois. His parents were committed Christians. And he abandoned everything he was taught and wound up committing suicide. He defines this manly nihilism let me give you a couple shots here. He says, the most dramatic statement of manliness would be the one where the man is the source of all meaning, where nothing else has meaning unless the man supplies it. That is the condition of nihilism, a state in which nothing in itself has meaning. Meaning has to be furnished by a human being, the sole source of meaning. The subject of this chapter is the great explosion of manliness that took place in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The explosion was a, particularly, was a particular assertion by the very manly male, and in America he even, has his he even has a name, and his name is Theodore Roosevelt. Whoever was more manly than Theodore Roosevelt? And I'm going to tell you something. If you've ever read a biography of Theodore Roosevelt, you know he was a man. He took a trip after he lost the presidency, he took a trip down the Amazon River that was insane. It just about killed him. And it just about killed everybody that was with him. I, I, I mean, you talk about guts, and you talk about courage, and you talk about a little bit of uh, foolishness. He, he was it. But if anybody was a man, and anyone had some courage, and did he always get it right? No. But, but he epitomized manliness. He says, whoever was more manly than Theodore Roosevelt, whoever spoke more emphatically that he, in praise of manly virtues, was the spokesman. 
If TR was the foremost champion, he was hardly alone. He mentioned some other men. Uh, now, note this. He's giving a little historical background. Why did such loud praise for manliness come at this time? We return to Charles Darwin and his influence. Darwin was not a nihilist, but he prepared his generation and later generations for nihilism. His theory of evolution not only denied the eternity of the species, but also undermined all eternities, all permanence of meeting. And looming behind Darwin was the greater figure of Nietzsche. Nietzsche declared and spread the news like a counter-apostle that God is dead. By this he meant all ideals, everything transcendent or spiritual, as well as God in any religion. The only response to this news, if you believe it, is an assertion that man must go on without God and must make his own ideals to pursue, his own idols to worship, his own substitute God. Thus, manliness gets a license from science and philosophy to boast and to act without restraint. That's our culture. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. You make your own gods, you make your own idols, you make your own rules. And that's counter to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. God has given borders to his men. And there are four things that God says here in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. And once again, why are we looking at these? Well, you know what? They just kind of sum up what it takes to fight the giants. And, and we've been looking at Joshua and Caleb, but I, I want to take a little step back and just let's see if we can't plug this in. You guys uh, at work, and how many of you guys still have jobs? I'm just curious. Well, you're blessed men. How many of you are without work right now? Let's see your hands. Look at this. Hmm. Well, he has not forgotten you, and he's with you, and you know that. And some of us raising our hands with jobs, in 90 days, we may be joining the other group. But he's in charge, and he'll make a way. And in going off on that rabbit trail, I lost my original thought. Four things. Let's just see. Let's, let's, let's review. Not for your sake, for mine. This is, this is happening to me more and more, isn't it, Lou? You know, Lou does all the stuff in my office for me, does all the booking, and um, together, Lou and I do pretty well. Apart, we're train wrecks. <laughs> but usually, if I forget something, Lou will remember it, because he writes everything down, and when he forgets something, sometimes I remember it, so we get through life. We kind of stumble through together, but it's tragic. It's, it's really tragic. And I told you the other day about the supplement called Sharp Minds. Last week, how many of you guys went out and bought Sharp Minds? Nobody. <laughs> it's your own fault. Hard-hearted, wicked men. I still can't remember where I was. Four things, yeah. We'll just let that one slide, you know. Huh? Those aren't, those, that's something else. I don't know what that is. Um, so, so you have these four borders of masculinity. Now, let's start breaking them down. The first one is this. He says, be on the alert. Be on the alert. Why in the world should we be on alert? 
Because if you name the name of Christ and you're seeking him first in your life, you should understand that you are in a war. And you are in a battle. And you will be in war and at war until the moment you die and are promoted to be with Christ. We are in a spiritual battlefield. And, and, and the reason we're in it is because Satan and his demons hate Christ. And because they hate Christ, and because you have been brought into the family of Christ, therefore because Christ is hated, you're hated. When a man gets serious about following Christ, I, I spoke this weekend before I went to Florida. This is why I don't do this too often. But I spoke in the San Francisco Bay Area. I love going to the Bible Belt. There's just something about it. <laughs> it's just so reaffirming and encouraging to go up there. Um, was, Nancy up there? was Nancy? Who's Nancy? Oh, man, don't get me in trouble, man. <laughs> She was. Uh, anyway. <laughs> anyway. Um, see, you're screwing me up. Once again, I'm just, I, you know, guys, I'm just trying to teach the Bible here. This is getting out of control. I was in San Francisco uh, with Nancy, and I'm there, and I'm trying to do this men's conference. And, you know, it was very interesting. I, I, I used to live up there. I, I lived there from the time we moved up there when I was in junior high school. And when you get off the plane, you can almost feel the difference. I'm dead serious. You can almost feel it. Mary and I were in England this summer for a few weeks, and we found out, we found out you could take the train at 7 o'clock in the morning. There's a station about three blocks away. You get on a train at 7 in the morning, you could be at Paris in two hours. You go underneath the channel. And then, you look around, you get on a bus, and you show your thing, you know, and you're back home at uh, 7.30. So we never went, so we did it. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. When we got off that train, and we got on the bus, and we got, and we got out in Paris, you know what I thought in my head? San Francisco. I am not kidding you. The parallels, I can't even go into the parallels, but it was the same, there was the same sense. It was the same sense. So I'm talking to these guys that live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Those guys know they're in a war. They know it because they're hated. They're ridiculed. They're persecuted. There's room for every viewpoint except theirs. And they deal with it every single day. But we live in Texas. And there's a whole different atmosphere down here. It's eroding there is still a semblance of Christianity in the culture. Up there, it's basically gone. What I'm saying is, it's easy when you live here to forget that you're at war. But when you live up there, you're constantly aware that you're at war. Uh, when you love Christ, there was a target painted on your back, and the enemy hates your guts. All of us in here are leaders, and we're leaders of different kinds, and we have been given different assignments in terms of our leadership. But someone is watching your life, and you are influencing someone for Christ. Now, here's the deal. The enemy does not want you to do that. So what he is going to attempt to do is to bring you down and to discredit you and to neutralize you 
and to take the heart out of you so that you don't want to be in battle anymore. That's why the, the first thing that is said in terms of Christian manliness is be on the alert. You're, you, you can never go off guard duty because you, you are always in the battle and you are always at war. And, and by the way, as things continue to deteriorate in this culture, you will constantly be swimming upstream. It is going to get more and more inconvenient to be a believer in this culture because there's basically a war on Christianity and on biblical truth. You see it, you experience it, and you know it's going to get worse. So be on the alert. Secondly, he says this. He says, stand firm in faith. Now, before I, before I hit this one, I, I want to go back to be on the alert. When you look at Joshua and Caleb, they were constantly on the alert. Constantly. They, they, they were about to go into the land and take on the giant. So there was a high level of alertness. I, I, again, what, what I'm trying to do is, is, is say that as we've studied Joshua and Caleb, all these things are present in their lives as we study them. Now, the second one, what's the second one he says? He says, stand firm in the faith. What, what does that mean? I've been in church since I was born. And you know what happens sometimes when we're in church all of our lives is that certain things are said, but they are rarely defined. And so we hear them, and we know the lingo, but we're not quite sure what they mean. Like uh, sanctify. You ever, you ever, you know, you know that term, it's in the Bible. You know, we throw that sanctify, sanctification. So what does that mean? Um, sanctification means be set apart. When, when you do your, you know, you get your check, you don't just go down to the bank and cash it and start spending money left and right. I really want to say something, but I'm not going to do that. So I'll move on. But most normal people who work for a living don't do that. See, what you do is you budget your money. So you don't just cash it and start spending, oh, I listen, oh, yeah, that'd be fun. And no, you don't do that. You're disciplined. And what you do is you take your check and you have set apart because you have different responsibilities. So your money for your mortgage, you've set that apart. The money for your giving to the Lord, you've set that apart. So you've sanctified the money. You got a car payment? You've, set it, you've sanctified You've set it apart. Uh, another one that we throw around but we rarely define is, is, is walking, walking by faith. Or here he says, stand firm in faith. What is it? How do you do How do you walk in faith or how do you stand firm in faith? What does that mean? I mean, really, when you get right down to it, how do you, how do, you do this stuff? What's this faith stuff? What does that mean? What it means basically, is that a man who is standing here in faith, it means that he is constantly thinking biblically about his life. Everything that happens to him, everything that occurs in his life, every giant that comes his way, every circumstance, what he does as he faces it, he is thinking. What is he thinking about? He is thinking about the things that are true. He is 
He is not just reacting. He's not just taking this on and taking this on. But everything that occurs in his life, there is a grid that he runs it through. And he lives his life by certain principles. Uh, The first principle in his life is that God is his father. And that Jesus, his son, has come and redeemed him from his sins, has given him eternal life, has given him a purpose and a mission and a work to do. And, and, and see, when different stuff comes your way in life, basically, guys, um, faith is thinking. You think. You just, you think. Um, he says here, stand firm. How do you stand firm when stuff keeps coming at you? I got it, Lou, thanks. How do you stand firm when stuff just keeps coming at you? Flip over to Ephesians 6. If you're new to your Bible, you want to go to the right. And sometimes when you're new to the Bible, it's overwhelming because there's so many different books. But go to the right and you'll, you'll come across Ephesians. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to, watch this, stand firm. Now back here we're told we're to stand firm in faith. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. See, here's, here's the deal. What the enemy wants to do is he wants to neutralize you in your leadership. He wants to neutralize you as a man in your effectiveness with your family, with your kids. So he's going to bring all these things. Perhaps the enemy's primary tool, perhaps, the primary tool that he uses in our lives is just flat-out discouragement. Oftentimes, we just get so discouraged because is this ever going to change? And what happens is we get weary in well-doing. We just get fatigued. And we wonder if there's ever going to be any glimmer of hope or if there's ever any possibility that there's going to be he often uses discouragement put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes because he's got a scheme for you and a different scheme for you and a different scheme for you our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the powers against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places therefore Take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. Third time. Stand uh, firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now, that's interesting, is it not? See, when you come across truth, you got to think. So how is it that we fight this spiritual war and the way the enemy comes at me and tries to bring me down? What is the first thing that I have to to do according to this, I've got to gird my loins with worship songs. No. I've got to, now if worship songs have truth, good. But I've got to gird myself with truth. Well, there is no absolute truth, our culture says. Oh, that's absolutely untrue. There is absolute, there is absolute truth because I have a Father in heaven this is, where, this is where Christianity is about facts. And they're either true or they're not true. And the way you walk by faith, sometimes we walk by faith, sometimes we stand 
in the faith. But faith is always about facts. God is either there, God is either sovereign, God is either in control, God is either in charge of the world and is working his plan, or he isn't. If he isn't, you don't want to think about that. But see, here's the truth. He is. He is. So when everything's collapsing, everything's panicking, what can you do? You just stand firm in faith because you're thinking. Everything that is happening to you, you are interpreting through truth, through God's word. So you've had a big, fet, uh, you've had a big uh, setback financially. Okay. Well, if you know the word of God, you know, as Job said, the Lord gives and the the Lord takes away. So ultimately, who is behind your loss of your financial portfolio? Ultimately, who's behind it? God. Your father did that. When your kids were small, and some of you have small kids, there are times when you would give to your kids, and there are times when you would take away. When you take away, you get your kids' attention, don't you? Well, that was, that's what he does with us. So see, when you say, oh, panic, well, how many ever, oh my gosh, what am I going to, oh, 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 what's happening? What is, what is that? Think, 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 what is happening? Well, you know, my sovereign God, for some reason, and, and, and Lord, I'm not sure what's going on here, but I need to pay attention. You've taken this away. Okay, now what's the message here? And you start, and you're paying attention. See, you're living your life by faith. Do you panic? Do you freak out? No, because he's, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Because of Isaiah 46. I want to go back to Isaiah 46. We were just there a couple weeks ago. Flip over there. It's always good to go to Isaiah 46. If you've lost money recently, if you're not sure you'll save enough for retirement, if you're not sure what you're going to do about health care, if all this, let me give you Isaiah 46. This will, hey, here's a stimulus package right here. This will stimulate you. It'll give you hope. Isaiah 46, verse 3. When your, uh, when your statements come in the mail from Schwab or from Merrill Lynch, or just write before you open them, just write down on the envelope Isaiah 46, 3. And read Isaiah 46, 3, and then read the statement. Okay? Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your grain years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. Well, good. You know what that means? It means relax. It means it's going to be okay. God knows to the penny what you're going to need to make it until the moment you die. Doesn't he? And guess what? It's all going to be there when you need it. Isn't it? It's called manna. Manna. Okay. 
Hey, right there. In this room, there was a visible sense of relief. Does that not help you? Sure it does. It just takes a load off your shoulders, doesn't it? Whew, man. That sure helps me. This, this will help you sleep at night. I mean, really, I take 12, etc. p.m., and I read that verse. I think, I, I, I think so much of being a Christian man, guys, I think so much of it is fighting off fear. Why is it that so many times in the Bible we read the words, fear, what, not? Why is that everywhere in the Bible? Why is it continually in the Bible? I mean, it's all the way through. You're reading along, fear not, fear not, fear not. Why is he always telling us that? Because that's our battle. Why do we get so discouraged? Because we're afraid. This is the scheme of the devil. He brings fear. He brings worry. He brings anxiety. Oh, my gosh. I should, if I had known this, if I had known this two years ago, I wouldn't have done that. That's exactly right. You wouldn't have. But you didn't know it. And it's a waste of energy to go back and second-guess yourself. Do you know what? Where you are right now is where God wants you. And this, well, you don't know this giant. I don't know it. And you don't know mine. But what giants do is force us to trust him. The only way you trust him is by thinking about what he's promised and by thinking about who he is. This that's how you fight off fear. You think. You just keep thinking. And, and you know, I have a little bit of a fear, and my little bit of a fear is I'm going to sound like a broken record. But it's not a big fear because this is the only source of hope as you face fear. You just keep thinking. You've got, you got to keep thinking biblically. You've got to keep going over the promises. First thing in the morning. Hey, here's another one. Isaiah 41. This, this is a good one. I love this one. Isaiah 41.10. How come Joshua and Caleb kept going? How come they kept fighting? How come they... Well... Hey, every time you go into battle, if you're not fearful, you're crazy. You're nuts. Of course you're fearful. I mean, you're insane if you don't experience any fear when you're going into a war, because all kinds of stuff can happen to you. But they kept moving, and they kept going into battle. I, what I'm saying to you is, they had to fight off fear. You're going to have to fight off fear. I'm going to have to fight off fear. Uh, Isaiah 41.10. Here's what the Lord says. Do not fear. Well, why shouldn't I fear because of this and all this? Oh, do not fear. Watch this. I am with you. Whew. Okay. Who's with me? Who's with me? God is. My Father. What's my Father like? You've got to go through this process. Who is my Father? Well, he's got all wisdom. I couldn't be where I am apart. But see, God has all wisdom. It doesn't make sense to me, but he's got wisdom. 
He's got all wisdom. He's got all power. He speaks the world into existence. He can make a way where there is no way. I look back, I've seen him do it my whole life. I look in the Bible, I see it on every page of the Bible. That's my father, dad gummit. So why am I having liquidity issues <laughs> at this very moment? <laughs> why is that? I'm not thinking. I'm not thinking. I got to think. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look around you. Because, see, when certain things start happening, you, you get a little gun shy and go, oh my, what's going to happen? You know, you, what's going to happen next? What does the Lord say? He says, don't anxiously look about you. Well, why not? Uh, for I'm your God. That's why. I will strengthen you. Surely, watch this. These are great words. I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Guys, this is truth. These are the facts. And this is how you fight off fear. Are you worried about losing your job because there's more layoffs coming and all this and da-da-da-da? Okay. How do you get any peace? How do you not lose your mind? How do you sleep at night? You put it in your mind. And you go over it. And you chew on it. You take, you, you take Isaiah 41, you just take a pinch between your cheek and gum. Remember old Walt Garrison? For true, for, true, for true tobacco pleasure. Just take a pinch between your cheek and gum. 20 years, you'll have mouth cancer. <laughs> he didn't tell us that. See, this is, this is how you fight off fear. You take that verse, and you take a pinch, and you put it in your mind. And you know what you do? As you're going through the day, you've got other stuff to do. You can't just focus on that. But you're just, as you're going through the day, you're just kind of. And that fear starts coming up, and you. You chew, and then you spit. Fear comes, what do you. You just loogie that sucker <laughs> with the word of God. That fear comes up, and I'm telling you, fear, hey, it's a force. It can knock you off your feet, can it not? So you got to chew on, on truth, and you got to have it. You just chew on it you, you, as you're going about. This is how you live your life. And, and, and see, and, and, and that's how, when all this is, stuff is coming, this is how you stand firm. This is how you stand firm. Instead of getting knocked off your feet by fear and worry and anxiety. Okay? This is the greatest stuff in the world. Do you know how blessed we are to have this? Really. What do people do who don't know Christ? Who don't know the word of God? Well, they got to medicate. They got to kill themselves. Let's go back to um, where are we? 1 Corinthians 16. He gives a third thing. Third thing he says is this. He says, uh, this is very interesting to me. He says, hey guys, act like men. Uh, oh, what does that mean? Well, if you work it through a little bit, he's talking about being courageous. Is really what he's talking about. Men are to be courageous. 
Women and children first. <laughs> Feminism is set aside on the Titanic. Did you get that? Hey, when there's a crunch and there's pressure, we want men to be men. Do we not? We want men to be masculine. You know what? When there's a crisis, we want men to act like men. We want, we thank God for firefighters that go into the towers when everybody else is trying to get out. That's courage. That's acting like a man. You don't jump in the lifeboat first. You get the women and you get the kids on there. And if there's any room left, you get in. If there's not, you're going to sing a hymn and you're going down, pal. But you know where you're going. So you can do that. Act like men. But we got a problem because so many men don't know how to act like men because we've lost masculinity and we don't value masculinity. We, we have an issue with feminizing men, not only in the culture, but in the church. Now, some of you guys have heard me do this before, but I'm going to do it again. And this is why Mac wanted me to come and talk to these young guys, because so many of them have been feminized. Now, what does that mean? Stephen Clark wrote a book 30 years ago called Man and Woman in Christ, and I quote from him. This is very good stuff. He says, Christians do not as easily identify the feminized male as someone for whom Christian manliness is a particular problem. This in itself is revealing. Contemporary Christians often lack an ideal of manly character. And they do not value some of the character traits that ought to be prominent in a man, like courage and aggressiveness and zeal and readiness to lead in a personal relationship situation when you are the proper person to do so. The contemporary picture of Christian character is all too often feminine, and the Victorian notion of feminine at that. The fact is, is that many men in our society have been feminized to some degree, and this is true of an increasing number of them. The term feminization, this is important that you catch this, as used by many social scientists, should not be confused with such words as femininity, effeminacy, or homosexuality. Femininity is a natural womanly quality. A woman is feminine when she has an appropriate womanly personality, when her strength and assertiveness and interests are expressed in a womanly way. Effeminacy describes the condition of a man who acts like a woman whose psychological structure is womanly. Effeminacy usually betrays an underlying difficulty uh, in, in social adjustment. Homosexuality refers to people who relate sexually to those of the same sex. Um, being feminized, then, is not the same as being effeminate or being feminine. Now, catch this. A feminized male is a male, and by the way, before I get into this, when I describe this, some of you guys are going to say, gosh, I think I've been feminized. We have all been feminized. But I want, to, I want you to get the good news. It's easily corrected. I'm dead serious. It is so easily corrected. You get as close to Christ as you can. And when you see a masculine man who loves Christ, you hang around him and you watch him. And you'll correct it. You can correct 30 years of feminization in a matter of weeks. Watch this. A feminized male is a male who has learned to behave or react in ways that are more appropriate to women. 
The feminized male can be normal as a male with no tendencies to reject being male and no tendencies towards homosexuality, and yet he can have been so influenced by women or can have so identified himself with a world in which women dominate that many of his interests and traits are more womanly than manly. Compared to men who have not been feminized, he will place much higher emphasis and attention on how he feels and how other people feel. He will be much more gentle and handle situations in a soft way. He will be much more subject to the approval of the group. Especially, uh, by the way, uh, politicians that take polls to see what positions they take are feminized. I don't care how many women they sleep with. They're feminized. He will be much more subject to the approval of the group, especially emotionally expressed approval, that is, how others feel about him and what he's doing, how others react to him. Joshua and Caleb were not feminized. If they had been, they never would have stood up against the ten. See, a, a masculine man is able to stand alone against the whole world, if need be. The feminized man will tend to fear women's emotions. And in his family and at work, he can be easily controlled by the possibility of women, his mother, wife, or co-worker, having an emotional reaction. He will tend to idealize women, and if he is religious, he will tend to see in women the ideal Christian or the definition of what it means to be spiritual. He will identify Christian virtue with feminine characteristics. So, you take kindness, gentleness, sensitivity. Are those good traits? Sure they are. They're very good traits. Let's take courage, aggressiveness, boldness. Paul said, pray for me that I might be bold. Now here's what, we, here's what the world does, and in many churches, here's what they do. In many churches, we take tenderness, kindness, gentleness, and we elevate those over courage and aggressiveness and boldness. And we say those are more godly traits, and they are not. They are not. You know what masculinity is? Masculinity is bringing to bear the appropriate trait at the appropriate time. Could Jesus be kind? Yes. Was Jesus always kind? No. Read his dialogue with the Pharisees. <laughs> he wasn't always kind. I had a guy tell me recently, his wife, who's a fine Christian, her, he, he said her, her, her highest ideal is kindness. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. Sometimes you need to be truthful. We take kindness, gentleness. Jesus could be kind. Jesus could be tender. Jesus could be sensitive. Did I tell you last week about the brick girl? I can't remember what I said last week. When I'm a kid, when I was a kid, my mom, my mom um, had these women's magazines. And on the back, some of you guys remember this, because you were in the women's magazines. When, <laughs> or your mom had them on the coffee table like my mom did. But on the back of these women's magazines, there was an advertisement for the Brett girl. Remember the Brett girl? And they had these beautiful portraits, beautiful girls. There was a shoulders up shot, and there was profile. A gorgeous girl, every month different. And she had this incredible hair. Glowing, luster, just amazing. She was the Brett girl. So I'm a little kid, six years old, go with my mom to a Christian bookstore. I walk in, 
And I was looking around, I look up on the wall, and there's a picture of Jesus in the garden in a robe. Remember that? He's like this. And I looked at Jesus, and I looked at his hair, and I went, Brett girl. <laughs> I'm just six years old. I knew Jesus used Brett. Because <laughs> his hair looked just like those girls in those magazines. And his hands were soft and manicured, his nails, and his complexion was flawless. And let me tell you something. The guy who painted that picture was feminized. Because Jesus didn't look like that. Jesus was a carpenter. And he didn't buy his lumber at Home Depot. <laughs> he cut his own trees. He planed his own wood. So as a result, he had some forearms on him. He had calluses on his hands. His fingernails were broken. And when he went into the temple to clear it out because they were profaning his father's house, he walked in there. You know what they did? They looked at him and said, look at his hair. Is that what they did? No. See, when he needed to get tough, he got tough. Was he tough all the time? No. But when it was appropriate to confront, he confronted. You see how, guys, this has to be in balance? You're not always a hard guy. But sometimes you need to take a stand. It's the right trait at the right time under the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's masculinity. I'm going to read something to you. I thought it was interesting. This came today. Email from Les. Um, Les says, Our preteen pastor received an email from a mom last week. Let me read you a quote from that email. She writes, My son desperately needs friendships, and I am praying he can find them through Junction 56, our preteen ministry. I never heard of Junction 56. But that's the name of the ministry to boys that are not quite teens. He also desperately needs positive adult male role models in his life. He has questions and wonders about things that, well, are uh, becoming very awkward for him to discuss, discuss with his mom. Right now, tonight, as we speak, this boy is sitting in a small group of other boys over in the children's building being led by a female leader. He's with a woman because Junction 56 only has four men serving as small group leaders on Wednesday nights. There are 14 women serving which we're thankful for, but it's not the ideal. And God bless those gals. These preteen boys are trying to transition from boyhood to manhood, and just like the boy in the email, uh, Les writes, they need male role models to guide them. If you've trusted Christ, would you prayerfully consider signing up as a small group guide for Wednesday nights in Junction 56? We need just five guys. There's a clipboard with the job description and more information at the information center in the back. Now, not everyone should do this, but if that's something God puts in your heart, say, well, I like to be Wednesday nights. I'll make sure, Lou, we'll make sure you get a CD of the deal on Wednesday nights. Maybe that's something God's calling you to. Nothing's more strategic. Uh, number four is be strong. Be strong. You know, the be strong, as a, how can you be strong? Because, you know, the fact of the matter, sometimes we're not strong. Sometimes we're just beat up. How can you be strong as a man? Um, I go back to Ephesians 6. Remember where we were later? You go back to Ephesians 6.10? Here's what it says. It says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the wiles of the devil. Be strong in the Lord. You see, if your father's strong, you can be strong. If your father is in charge of your life, you can be strong because the destiny of your life and the consequences of your decisions, when you stand for truth and you do what's right and everyone is saying you ought to go the different way, when you stand and you're strong because your God is strong, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen to you because he controls it all. You see, once again, we're back to thinking. We're back to thinking. In David Jeremiah's book, What in the World is Going On? One of the best books I've read in a long time on biblical prophecy. He tells a story in here about Harry Truman and about the day when Israel declared themselves to be a nation in 1948. All of his advisors were against him, including Secretary of State George C. Marshall, whom, whom Truman regarded as the greatest living America. Marshall was a, was a tremendous mind and a tremendous leader and a man with great gravitas, and Truman had the greatest respect for this man. But all of his counselors, including Marshall, were saying, you cannot recognize Israel. It is not a good political move. Um, one of his other advisors had bluntly told Clark Clifford, who was one of Truman's confidants, you fellows over at the White House are not just facing up to the realities in the Middle East. There are 30 million Arabs on one side and about 600,000 Jews on the other. It is clear that in any contest, the Arabs are going to overwhelm the Jews. Why don't you face up to the reality? Just look at the numbers. They're all telling Truman, don't recognize Israel. But Truman detested intolerance and discrimination, and he had been deeply moved by the plight of the Jews during World War II. More to the point, Clifford wrote, Truman was a student and believer in the Bible from his youth. From his reading of the Old Testament, he felt the Jews derived a legitimate historical right to Palestine, and he sometimes cited such biblical lines as Deuteronomy 1.8. Behold, I have given up the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land which the Lord your God has sworn unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He talks about this meeting and all these generals, including Marshall, making this decision and advising the president. And Marshall said to him at one point, he got so mad, Marshall did, he erupted in anger. And Marshall looked at Truman and said, if you follow this advice and if I were to vote in the election, I would vote against you. And it was dead silence in there. He writes, Truman himself was greatly shaken by the fierceness of this general's opposition. Uh, Truman, running for re-election, was on thin ice politically, and he could not afford to lose the support of such a towering figure as Marshall. Clark Clifford left the meeting thinking that the case was lost. But when push came to shove, Press Secretary Charlie Ross stepped out to meet an awaiting press and read these words, the government has been informed that a Jewish state has been proclaimed in Palestine, the United States recognizes the provisional government as de facto authority of the new state of Israel. The chief rabbi of Israel contacted President Truman and said, God put you in your mother's womb so that you could be the instrument to bring about the rebirth of Israel after 2,000 years. 
Another witness to the scene, Truman's administrative assistant, David Niles, reported the president's reaction to Herzog's generous assertion. He said, I thought he was, doing, he was overdoing things, remembered Niles. But I, when, when I looked over at the president, tears were running down his cheeks. He was strong, even if it would cost him politically, because he knew what the Bible said and he could not go against his conscience. And the whole history of the world was changed, humanly speaking, by one man being willing to be strong and trust God with his political career. Let us go and do likewise. We thank you, Father, for your word. We're just a bunch of average guys, and we need your help, and we need your strength, and we need your courage. We're all facing different issues. Help, help us to face them and stare fear in the face and spit the word of God into its eye and trust you that you will make a way and you will reward us. We are safe. We are secure. We are in the arms of our Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Things are collapsing, and we see it before our very eyes. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And all around us, we see the foundations of a once great society collapsing, do we not? And that is discouraging, and it is distressing. And it is all according to the plan of God. <laughs> it is. I'm telling you, he's working the plan. Isn't he? If, hey, let me tell you something. If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God right now, if you don't believe that God is in absolute control, if you're weak on sovereignty, you're screwed. <laughs> Do you know that? You've got no hope. In the Greek, it's screwizo, I believe, is the word. But you know what? That is just flat-out true. If God is not in absolute control, we ought to be panicked because it's going and it's going down fast, isn't it? And you wonder, where is it going to stop? Is there, is there an emergency break on this thing? And the answer is, there's not a break on it other than the great restrainer, the Spirit of God, who lives in the lives of his people. But God is working the plan. So as, as a result, you know what, guys? When everybody's panicked and worried and sick to their saying, we've got hope. We've got hope. Why are you in despair, oh my soul? And why have you become cast down within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. The whole thing can go down. The whole thing can collapse. Nationalize the banks. Do this. Do, you know, stimulate. Let them out of prison. And he's sovereign. He's sovereign. And, 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 
And men's hearts are going to fail them because of fear. And that's when some of them will call upon his name. Because for some of them, that's what it's going to take to call on the name of the Lord. Oh, and by the way, there's always a group of people that God blesses in the midst of a great collapse and meltdown. Historically, you see it in the Bible. When there's, a, when there's a breakdown of culture, when there's a breakdown, when there's a breakdown of Israel, there was a breakdown of Judah. We're not taping yet, are we? You are taping. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't started the study yet, but we're taping. When there was a breakdown back then, there was a group of people that God took care of in the midst of collapse. Um, he provided for them. He, he met their needs. You know what those people are called? They're called Baptists. <laughs> they're called, you know what they're called? They're called the remnant. They're the ones that love him with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength and all their might. And they have great peace. They have great peace. Those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. We know his name, and because he's great, and because we're not, let's kneel if you're physically able to do so, and we'll pray, all right?